Welcome to the brightest audience in the country. I'm Fred Williams, host of Real Science Radio. And I'm Doug McBurney, host of the Weekly Worldview, amateur comedian and philosopher. It's great to be here with you today, Fred. Well, Doug, it's great to have you here. And you know what? I have a feeling that Dr. Seyfried's Cato diet really hasn't taken hold with you because I'm looking at a <laughs> well, I'm looking at a Big Mac here, some tater tots. <laughs> No, that's not a Big Mac. Oh, that, okay. Well, that is, that's the fully loaded croissant sandwich. Oh, there you go. Bacon, egg, cheese. But you didn't take the bread day. off, so I guess the, no. the keto diet's on hold. Huh? Well, I, I break it once in a while just so I can not go insane. Yeah. <laughs> well, Doug, there's something in the media that's gaining a ton of steam. I'm hearing it everywhere. And it's this whole thing about artificial intelligence. Yes, artificial intelligence, which, if I'm not mistaken, the late, great Bob Enyart worked on artificial intelligence back before it was even cool, right? Yeah, that's right. With some computer outfit. And by the way, have you ever heard the story of Microsoft's local area network at the Consumer Electronics Show in the early 1980s? Have you ever heard that story? I actually have not. All right, well... I only have it secondhand, but I I have a feeling it might have something to do with what's happening with some of the select inquiring minds who are inquiring of the various artificial intelligent bot interfaces or whatever you call it. I may I may come back to that later. Okay. Well, you know, speaking of artificial intelligence, I know someone who might know about that conference and that story. You might recall last year before you became the official co-host of Real Science Radio, Daniel Hedrick and I did several shows where Daniel first raised the alarm on all this artificial intelligence business and where it was heading. In fact, one of those yeah. shows, it was one year ago, almost to this day, it was our show on the two AIs, Alien Invasion and artificial intelligence. That's right. Those were pretty prophetic and timely. Yes, yes. I got to tell you, Fred, I'm terrified that the alien invasion narrative is just behind the curtain at stage right. Right now, Fred, <laughs> the global deep state media complex is going to spring it on us any minute, and the whole world's going to fall for it that the aliens have come in, right? But that's insane. That's crazy, right? That's like... <laughs> That's like thinking Canada would become a despotic tyranny overnight or, or or that a sock puppet could be installed as the president of the United States. That's how crazy <laughs> that is. Anyway, I need to get a witness from Daniel Hedrick himself. Fred, Daniel's been the go-to guy on artificial intelligence, everything computers, everything alien, everything information technology. So there's no better person to help us with the topic of artificial and actual intelligence Let's welcome RSR's security and information science expert and founder of GodIsNowHere.org, Mr. Daniel Hedrick. Daniel, welcome to the show. <laughs> well, man, thanks for uh, bringing me on with laughter. I love it. So nice to be back, and uh, I look forward to talking to you about artificial intelligence. I've also been paying attention a little bit more to the alien invasion. In fact, I think I just saw a show yesterday or YouTube or whatever that, oh, we now have proof 
these spheres are everywhere, mm. you know, so it's definitely coming, and uh, we'll talk <laughs> about hopefully that another time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the reason why I wanted to come on the show, and it is timely, it's amazing, because I've really put my head down and tried to study and understand what's going on with artificial intelligence, and as you may know, uh, ChatGPT is by far the fastest growing user population in history, faster than Facebook, faster than Twitter, and all of these Now things. that so, I did not know. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah, huge amount. I mean, and by the way, I am a ChatGPT Plus subscriber. So Is that I like a blue check guy? I, I have access. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and what I hope to do is when we go through this, you're going to see that there is a lot of craziness about this subject, and I really do hope I can bring something real to it. And I would also say that there are some benefits to understanding and using AI, and hopefully we'll get there. And the other thing is I really love this show. I have so much fun with it, and I just want you to know I loved the show on Do Dogs Go to Heaven because I generally agree with many of the statements you guys made. In fact, just one that I want to bring out, and it's just a possibility, you know, those things that we think of that are not necessarily in the Word, but I could imagine that there could be some faithful out there that have just done everything for the Lord, you know, everything, let's say, that God desired of them. And maybe in their internal desire to, boy, I sure wish my dog Shadow was here with me, you know, in heaven. I could imagine that the Lord would do such a thing. And maybe it's a dupe, I don't know. But I just think it is possible. Oh, uh, I see. You're saying like individual case-by-case type thing. Yeah, I mean, that's huh? just, again, it's not in the Word. I'm just well, saying that maybe these people did right? something that God wanted to bless and say, yeah, you want your dog back, I'll let you have him back. Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I cannot argue with that. And just a, a reminder, we weren't real dogmatic <laughs> our position. <laughs> we, were <not. laughs> we were not. We were not dogmatic that dogs would not be in heaven, our pets, but, you know, no. we'll, we'll see. And my wife and daughters, as we go through our weekly Bible study that we do, they continually are pointing up verses that bring some possibility that okay. there could be animals in heaven. I, like, once a month, I get a new verse. Yeah, and I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, and the other thing is, I know that you like to pick on cats, but I do want you to know one of my favorite hobbies before we get into this awesome subject is driving faster, and I like to say driving faster than you. Oh, yeah. So no matter who I'm talking to, it doesn't matter who I'm looking at. Hi, my name's Daniel. I drive faster than you. <laughs> and uh, But I, legally. I, yeah, and legal, yeah, because I won't do it on the highway, no, but on a racetrack. And what's really interesting is I was at Nelson Ledges, and we took our cat. And so we officially have a track cat, oh. and I can tell you with certainty that I'm probably the only person ever to bring a cat to the track. <laughs> Well, now, you know, wait. that dog show we did, it was one of our most popular. We could contemplate maybe doing a Do Cats Go to Heaven? That could end up being our lowest rated show. Oh! <laughs> but, wait. Now, wait, Daniel. Did you? <laughs> so you had the cat on the track. Did you have the cat in the car? No, they won't because I, I can't find a helmet that would fit. That would fit <laughs> anyway, a cat well, could in you the put car. It, you could put it on the hood of the car. That, I, that's yeah. been done before. <laughs> But a cat Hold in the car is a yeah. bad idea. <laughs> I noticed you didn't mention the name of your cat. I would suggest, if you may, if you don't mind, I'll suggest a name for your cat. How about Fourth and Long? Brutal. <laughs> <Just> Poor Willow. <laughs> uh, not so fast, though. Huh? <laughs> All right, Daniel, before we get into the subject of artificial intelligence, please familiarize or re-familiarize the audience with your bona fides, sir. 
Thank you. Thank you for asking. Well, first off, God is Now Here has been a ministry, a hobby, and uh, I do want the listeners to know that I have just got WordPress, if you know what that is, and I've restarted to rebuild the site. So godisnowhere.org. If you go there now, you might laugh at it, but again, it's just kind of a new framework. So I've had the chance to be a witness and to preach the gospel and hopefully provide reasons to believe in God. And uh, science and real science radio and Bob Enyart and both of you have been a big, big part of that. And I'm really, really thankful. But today I work for the largest bank in the world that you probably have never heard of. And the reason is because it's a bank of banks. And I can neither confirm nor deny that they are the ones that paid for that wonderful MLK statues that you may or may not have heard oh about. my goodness oh, really an atrocity huh. an atrocity of modern art yeah i i probably should just quit my job but no like wait i didn't say that did i <laughs> i love my work i love working with the people that i have and i have a great deal of responsibility there but they certainly were not aware of how <laughs> well just how wicked that mlk statue was even modern art people were astounded at how horrible that thing looked yeah it was terrible but wow. uh, what's interesting about working there <laughs> is that they're giving me a chance, and that's the way I maintain my professional training and getting the highest reviews and all of that. And But I get to choose what I study. And so, of course, you can guess what it is. I have an emphasis on artificial intelligence. Very good. Well, that's great for us. You know, Bob and I, we actually did a few shows on artificial intelligence in the past. There was one, you know, Stephen Hawking, he's such a paranoid he thinks that they're going to be thinking beings. And, you know, of course, he says, don't talk to aliens because they might be mean. I remember. That. So, yeah, you can go find those shows on rsr.org. But it's really clutch that you're with us, Daniel, now that AI is just really taking off since one year ago when we did those shows. I'm curious, do you roughly know when artificial intelligence got its start? Well, sure. I mean, AI, the history of it can be traced back to the 50s. And uh, that was the first time the term artificial, quote, intelligence was used. It was coined by John McCarthy. And he's actually referred to as the father of AI. And of course, you may have seen some videos. In fact, I see them popping up on YouTube. I am a YouTube user. I'm trying to get off of it, but I, I, I do watch it. And Arthur C. Clarke had made quite a few comments about AI during the same time as the World's Fair in 1964. <laughs> but I highly doubt either of these fellows figured out that Chatbot would be the very first overwhelming product that mm-hmm. they ever created or, or that artificial intelligence would end up being you know, used with. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I've talked to a lot of people uh, preparing for the show and just you know, getting their ideas. And I've asked them, when do you think artificial intelligence first started? And surprisingly, I, well, you know, I guess just because I'm in the business, Maybe I, I'm more aware, but they all say in the 90s. And uh, that sort of just tells you that it is new, even though it's been around a long time. The very first system claimed to be something that even approached artificial intelligence was called the IBM System 360 mainframe. And uh, it was pretty neat because it had interchangeable software, peripheral equipment, and allowed customers to upgrade uh, their systems uh, as more advanced technology became available. Well, I remember quite well the IBM System 360. So by the roughly the mid-80s, I was working for a company called McData, and we developed some of the add-ons that people would attach to this mainframe. We did a thing called a channel extender and another product that uh, I was the architect for, which is a sysplex timer. So at the time, that 
System 360, it was the most advanced supercomputer in the world. It was the size of like a refrigerator, Doug, if you can imagine. I mean, we both have our laptops here in the studio. This thing was the size of a refrigerator. Yeah. But well, that thing's really antiquated now. Well, I, I can't imagine. I remember we're leaping backward into ancient history, the 1990s, which shockingly enough is 30 years ago. Yeah, it's hard to believe. <laughs> Man. Wow. It's crazy, huh? And you know what? That's exactly when I was working in a skiff, and there was this HP 9000 all boxed up in the corner. To be honest with you, the, while the flight crews were doing their thing after we did mission planning, I played a game called Prince of Persia. I don't know if you ever got to enjoy that game, but I used to play that, let's say, religiously at the time before <laughs> I was a Christian. But I do remember seeing this box in the corner. I'm like, what the heck is that? So I put the game away for a little while. And uh, I saw that there were these load instructions, and yes, I'm going to date myself continually. There were about 120 five and a quarter inch discs, floppy oh, wow. discs, <laughs> and I loaded them up. It took me two days to do, and once I got it all in there, I realized it was this program called IMOM, Improved Many on Many. So I contacted the 23rd Air Force and asked for the access to real world updates, which I got. And... It was the seemingly innocuous event of not playing video games and actually getting to work hmm. that fundamentally changed my <laughs> yeah, career uh, forever. All right. And, and so for, for everyone out there in the audience, a skiff is not a small boat. It's not. It's, in this case, this is a, a sensitive compartmented information facility. And back then, it's not like it is today. They don't, it's, the skiff isn't in Joe Biden's garage the skiff isn't in Hunter Biden's hotel room. This is back, Daniel, right, when, when national security was actually a thing, right? <laughs> You're so right. You know, I mean, where are our secrets today, man? I mean, anything close to what Joe did with the Ukrainian secrets. And I know I would be off to Leavenworth. I, I have stories from back on Intel, the days of intelligence. Well, we call it military intelligence. They call it an oxymoron but yeah um, you were the reality yeah, you worked for the military that, so just yeah <laughs> well the thing is i mean i know people that got sent to leavenworth for a lot less oh so, yeah but yeah and i mean i was honored to serve as an intel officer and you know i got to do mission planning and i got to work with special forces uh, including the army guys navy seals the whole bit and you know it requires specialized skills on their part and it requires special skills on our part. And isn't it crazy? I mean, it's just so funny to me. If I didn't put that IMOM together, we wouldn't have used IMOM for some of the mission planning that we did. It's just so bizarre. Hmm. And the data that we got was integrated with some of the CIA and NSA information. So when they did the mission plans, obviously we want to protect our air crews, getting them in and out of the target. Uh, but the primary focus of that software and it didn't have any artificial intelligence at all, was to make sure that when you do your flight plan that you don't get detected by radars. Uh, radars like height finders, early warning radars, and what's called GCI, or ground control intercept. And uh, again, one more time, I became the expert on this system that I was never officially trained on. <laughs> so that IMOM system. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And what's pretty neat is once I decided to leave the Air Force, I became the lead instructor uh, of that system. Never was trained. <laughs> Just want to be clear about that. And traveled the entire United States, Central America, the Middle East, and uh, I taught everyone how to use it. And again, if it didn't do that, I just find it amazing. 
that if I didn't do that and I just continued to play video games, where would I be, you know? <laughs> so I'm thankful. And now I do data protection for, again, a very large bank. And again, I'm not sure if it's too valuable that people know this history, but I thought it was important to provide that background so that maybe when all of us start talking about our evaluation of AI, they might have a reason to think through it with us. Yeah, well, no, I, I think it's great that you bring this up. It does help provide your background to our listeners is, is important. I mean, you really are an expert on this. And I know these early decisions and the opportunities that you've been talking about, it's really helped you to do what you do today. In fact, I remember you were one of the first to call out. Bob had you on right after the election, this last presidential election, when Biden beat Trump. You were one of the first ones to call out Dominion software voting systems. And just how insecure and vulnerable it is, you made a very compelling case. And I understand at least the software concepts behind it and what you're talking about with like how simple it is just to log in as an admin on Linux. And honestly, Daniel, and I'm not a conspiracy guy, it oh, made no. me lose faith in the voting system in Colorado. I mean, I do think we're a blue state, but I'm not 100% sure because I just don't trust. It's too easy to change votes well, and, with and software. Let's just take, for example, your daily life. How many insane, radical, leftist maniacs do you meet? There aren't that many, but there sure seem to be an awful lot that vote. It's really weird. <laughs> it's even worse yeah. in California. Everyone thinks that everyone in California is insane, but they're generally not. And so it's surprising that 70 or 80% of the people vote as if they're insane, and it makes you wonder if maybe... Maybe there's some, what do they say? Some shenanigans. There might be some shenanigans built in, like, maybe over the past century or so. I yeah. think they've been building in yes. the shenanigans. Anyway, Daniel, your story is a, a message to all the young kids out there in America. If you put the video games down, something good might happen to your life. So th this show is valuable just for that insight alone that you put down the video yeah. games and it changed your life for the better forever. And, and Daniel, I remember the show you did with Bob after the election back in 2020. I love the fact that Fred said, <laughs> Fred just said that, that Joe Biden beat Donald Trump. Anyway, so I, I'm not a big Donald Trump fan. Donald Trump got more votes than any other person in American history. And Joe Biden didn't. I'll just leave it at that. But you did that show with Bob. And and by the way, you can go to rsr.org. Just search for Dominion Voting meets RSR's data security analyst. Just search Dominion Voting. But Daniel, today we're going to talk artificial intelligence. So let's leave all this other stuff aside and get right into it. Awesome, awesome. Well, what I think is interesting about artificial intelligence, and I learned this a while back when I started using what's called support vector machines. And the very, very first step in using any form of artificial intelligence is using various areas I work in with data loss prevention. So in this example, data classification and all the algorithm and statistical models that we use to analyze and make predictions, they all start with patterns and phrases. And we'll talk about that. But I think it's important to realize that what is commonly called AI is not. Oh, kind of like the election in 2020. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Exactly right. The winner beat 
Donald Trump. Yes, right. He beat him, all right. So uh, <laughs> crazy, man. But I, I do think that what we're going to find out now is that the artificial intelligence systems that are going to have the greatest impact on society right now are the large language models, right? So whether the large language models were based off of something I did with support vector machines or now in the third and fourth generation with something like chat GPT, they all use similar methods, right? But the biggest difference is that they have fantastic speed and performance entering into the trillions of parameters. And a parameter is basically pretty much anything you can think about that might frame, let's say, human speech. And we'll talk about various areas because it's not limited to human speech. But in data classification, algorithms are used to automatically sort and predefine categories or labels. So in this example, you know, like in the military, top secret, no foreign, win and tell, you know, mm -hmm. umbra, right? Yeah, yeah. That's mm -hmm. a data classification string that would be put on text, right? Where I'm at work now today, we just simply classify it in, into various areas such as confidential, limited access, and general. Very simple, very basic. To illustrate maybe the value of this, I kind of liken it to the classic tale of Pinocchio. And if you think about it, so as a puppet, Pinocchio was soon able to gain a certain amount of autonomy, but still required the support of Geppetto, his maker. Right. And Pinocchio was guided along his path, right, as he's doing his thing. Geppetto implemented various mechanisms to make sure that he remained safe, right? Such as putting bells on his hat and painting him in bright colors. And that would make him so much easier to see. The same way that we use these confidential uh, key phrases we put into our documents and our other transactions to identify it. So in a sense, Geppetto's actions are very, very similar to implementing traditional methods of data loss prevention, not AI. I got it. So like when hmm. Pinocchio ran into mischief, a.k.a. data loss or theft, Geppetto was no longer able to protect him. And thankfully, Jiminy Cricket, a.k.a. AI, swooped in and prevented any real harm from being done. And while Jiminy wasn't able to stop Pinocchio from getting into trouble in the first place, he was able to help him you know, mitigate the severity of the consequences because with or without the bells, he was still protected. Right, exactly. It's supposed to be smart. And right, besides right. just loud bells and bright colors. Well, I think we could use those uh, you know, hat with bells on it for some of the guys I play basketball with, Doug. But <laughs> anyways, Daniel, can you give us a picture of how artificial intelligence actually works? My daughter right now is taking computer science up at Colorado State. And this very moment, she's taking a course in machine learning. And maybe we'll get into that. But I'd like to hear, how does artificial intelligence, how does it do its thing? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you can tell your daughter the machine learning that she's doing is probably going to start with what's called a support vector machine. And what that does, and along with this big change with GPT, is it deals with parameters. And the very first parameter, generally speaking, are what are called tokens, keywords. They even call them features. And if you can imagine, let's say you have a document or the Bible or anything, a manual, and you look at all the words in there, you do what's called a TFIDF, term frequency, inverse document frequency. That gives you a list of key phrases that are associated with that document. And if it's a multiple set of documents, and then it's the relationship across all those documents. 
Then you use that as your parameter. And then if you can imagine in your mind a vector, a vector is going to segregate it between, let's say, above the line and below the line. And if it's above the line, it has meaning and relevance. If it's below the line, it doesn't. Hmm. So now imagine that you have billions of connections, trillions of parameters. And my mind hurts. Okay, I admit, and in fact, the people that actually work on these systems also admit that they don't even know how it works. And there are layers upon layers. I used to do this thing called content analysis description language, which was kind of an XML-based language that allowed you to design a detection policy. And to be honest with you, I used to dream of this language in the shower, you know, those shower <laughs> moments, yeah. and program pretty darn sophisticated mechanisms for detecting things. Well, that's exactly what these systems do, but they're doing it on parameters much, much larger than anything that I've ever could even imagine, right? So the basic concept of ChatGPT, right, is it's a large language model, and it uses what's called generative modeling. And the way that works is through prompting. So you ask it a question. So the same way when I built this content analysis description language detection model is I'm basically asking the system a question. Hey, look at all these parameters and bring back the relevance of it. Now what's different though is that ChatGPT is communicating to you in human language. And so it takes in all these massive sets, Wikipedia, Reddit, books, articles, and you train it on this. And if it looks like this, then bring it back, right? In other words, I'm, I'm asking you a question about what it's like, bring back something that it is also like. And that's the training session. And by the way, this is a really, really important part. These transformers, the mechanism that allows the machine models to be trained makes it really accurate, but it's important to know that part of that modeling comes from humans. Yeah, in fact, so it should be pretty darn injected. obvious. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it should be pretty darn obvious that Wikipedia and Reddit, are yeah. you kidding me? The kind of stuff that's yeah. in there, right. that's the source. Yep. And then you have some other person that has the same beliefs as what they're reading in Wikipedia. Oh, yeah, like, like that article. <laughs> Let's make sure that stays in there. Right. And then, um, if sorry, I'm kind of like an. And that would be here, like. But I re- and maybe that would ahead. be that vector thing where there's a threshold where that becomes a more prominent response that maybe that AI will return. Did well, I understand right. that I kind of correctly? Remember when Bob was trying to correct Wikipedia on the, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, the person that invented the MRI and he couldn't get it done? Yeah. Yep. He tried so hard. Well, that's what's happening behind the scenes, right? Is that you have these people that are building these models and they're deciding that that particular Wikipedia is not going to be digested or in the transformer. So there's multiple layers here that we have to deal with. So, so we can pretty much assume that all cable news will feature mostly AI hosts pretty soon, since the ones they have already match the less thoughtful and annoying parts of AI that, that you've already described. But anyway... But we'll leave the cable hosts aside for right now. How does artificial intelligence, Daniel, compare to human brains? You know, that's a great question and one obvious that we should definitely make a comparison to. One thing is the computational resources for GPT was trained on a supercomputer with hundreds of GPUs, thousands of cores, and it requires a significant amount of computational resources to train 
fine tune and run the models. And the details of these resources are changing all the time because they do have the ability to add and take away. But what's really interesting is that a lot of them have said that it basically equals, ready for this, the neuronal capabilities of a mouse. Huh. <laughs> a mouse? <laughs> a mouse? All right. So, I doubt that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that might even be a stretch. So yeah. we can assume that they've got more brain power than, let's say, Don Lemon, <laughs> but maybe not quite as much as Joy Reid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I think I'm going to have to use a prompt and ask the track cat, uh, which is tastier, joy or lemon? <laughs> Sorry, I was bad AI joke here. But in comparison, the consumption of the human brain compared to however many megawatts is being used by AI, think about this. The human brain only uses 20 watts. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I, I, I immediately started thinking when you were talking about this, about the human brain, comparing it to that. and. It's obviously the human brain is light years more efficient and effective. I just want to repeat what you just said. The human brain requires just 20 watts to operate. It's incredibly highly efficient at processing information, and it consumes such little amount of power compared to these artificial neural networks like GPT that you just mentioned. In fact, I was Googling around and I found that GPT-3's consumption, well, I found this article, it's on Numenta website, and it estimates that GPT-3 consumes 936 megawatts. <laughs> now, Doug, compare that to 20 watts wow. of the human brain. I mean, Man. wow. Now, my math, that's like a staggering 47 million more watts per hour for GPT-3 over the human brain. Wow. Furthermore, the article goes on to say, and I'll quote this, since 2012, the computational resources needed to train these AI systems have been doubling every 3.4 months. One business partner told us that their deep learning models could power a city. Oh. This escalation in energy use runs counter to the stated goals of many organizations to achieve carbon neutrality <laughs> in the coming decade. <laughs> wow, so AI could be upsetting the liberals That's too, it. Doug. That's it, yeah. Where's all this electricity supposed to come from, by the way? With no gas, no oil, no coal, right? To fire the power plants. Do the liberals think they're going to run AI off the glow off Gavin Newsom's teeth? Because this is just the beginning, right? I mean, we're talking about a massive need for electricity. Am I right? Well, yeah. And again, the liberals, yeah, they'll act like they're upset, but at the same time, they'll be flying in their jets and, you know, yeah. their, their carbon footprint will be higher than most of ours. But... Just to kind of put this into perspective, Daniel, you mentioned the System 360, that big, huge IBM mainframe that we used to actually build peripheral products for back in the day. That thing could perform 8 million operations per second. I remember that was just like mind-boggling. Again, we're dating ourselves back in the 80s. Well, yeah, you know, Doug, yeah. you told me last show that I was dating myself. I don't yeah. date myself. <laughs> I dated my wife and I got married, okay? <laughs> End of story. Yeah. So anyways, I got this laptop here right in front of me. It's really good Hewlett Packard. And this guy actually can do 100 billion instructions per second. So remember the wow. System 360 was 8 million. So this thing is 12,000 times more powerful, just my laptop. So one of the fastest supercomputers, it's known as Summit. Today, that thing is capable of performing over 149 petaflops 
And those are floating point operations per second for those computer geeks in the audience. And it uses this basically 2.5 million cores. And it makes this a million times more powerful than that System 360 thing that I worked on back in the 80s. Wow. And then you've got this Fujitsu's Fugatu supercomputer in Japan. It has theoretical limits at more than twice that of what I just mentioned with this Summit supercomputer. I mean, wow. Yeah. And this Summit, it has 4,600 servers or more. And they take up the size of, imagine this, two basketball courts. You know, we've got March Madness coming up. So just think of the size of two basketball courts. They house more than 9,200 IBM Power 9 processors and over 27,600 Tesla V100 GPUs. And that's general processing units. And this system, Doug and Daniel, is connected by 185 miles of fiber (laughs) optic cable and it consumes enough power to run 8,100 homes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, that is insane. Think of that. Two basketball courts on 185 miles of fiber optic cable. Wow. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you have to admit it's amazing. And if you compare that to human biology, you know, again, according to American Heart Association, the total length of all blood vessels in an adult human, ready for this one? It's about 60,000 miles. Get out. So, oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> and the lengths of the nerves in the human body, actually, I don't know why I thought it would be more, but the, the nerves in the human body altogether estimate to about 45 miles. So wow. we actually have more okay. uh, hmm. you know, blood vessels than, than nerves. And again, this was estimated based on a Journal of Comparative Neurology. So while all of these capabilities and features are impressive, I'm blown away. But chat GPT is far more inferior in its capabilities than the media is describing. And so from now going forward, I really want everyone to know, while it's amazing, it's undeniable that you can do a lot of amazing things with AI, and we'll talk about it, but you cannot trust it. You cannot ah, trust oh, it oh, at all. Daniel, we're about, to, we're about to run out of time, and that's a good place for us to probably stop. we got everybody on the edge of their seat now, because now I want to know, what can I trust? What should I not trust? Yeah. Where should I be careful? And can you tell me why? Which, we'll have to have you back, Daniel, and we'll have to talk yeah, about Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to like, Great. some of the things Great. that ChatGPT does. So, yeah, Set Daniel, we're going to have to do a part two here. I can't wait to get to it. Again, some super interesting stuff that we're going to find out yeah. what this chat GPT and these other AI systems produce. So, Daniel, will you come back next week? Sir, yes, sir. I look forward to it. All right. Well, can't wait for that. So, for Doug McBurney and our information expert, Daniel Hedrick, I'm Fred Williams of Real Science Radio. May God bless you. Scholars can't explain it all the way.